Salofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. More than 200 other people who were injured at that night, with 77 of them just were admitted to the hospital. Manus Island murder witness wants justice. Also. People feel that they'll be forced to sell out because they're desperate. Maui fires sheds light on Hawaii's housing crisis. And later, the people of Banaba are seeking a formal apology from the New Zealand government. The roommates of a refugee bludgeoned to death in an Australian-run detention centre on Manus Island nine years ago will not stop fighting for justice. The Australian government has finally recognised the suffering and misery inflicted on Reza Barati's family by reaching a confidential settlement. But Reza's friend, Benham Sattar, who witnessed Mr Barati's murder, told Lydia Lewis it doesn't go far enough. Actually, I am very sad that this is confidential. They are not publishing it to people know what happened. You know, we need to know what settlement they reached on. Uh, because it wasn't just Reza. We had more than 200 other people who were injured at that night, with 77 of them just were admitted to the hospital. We, you know, it wasn't just Reza. You know, one guy was shot. One guy lost his eyes, That his eye that is still in Australia suffering. Other people, you know, uh, I am... I know I am very I am very aware of Australian brutality about trying to wash their hands off the crimes they do in other places but it is uh, Reza's case is not something that can be you know wiped out of the history we will I will follow it up as a person who testified in court and risked his life and got many threats to be killed to not to go to court I will say not for Reza for other people I will follow up What happened to Reza Actually, he was murdered by expatriate and locals at our doorway in MA6, room number, or room number was 12. And he was, you know, he was escaping from uh, the uh, telephone room because when they attacked us and started shooting, Reza was in the telephone room. He went there to call for help. But unfortunately, they got him on the stairs and... You know, first, Joshua, who is on the run at the moment, he was, you know, just in jail, like, for three years and after he escaped. But, uh, you know, Louis, he did his time. Uh, so Joshua beat him in the head, and when he fell down, Australian expatriates, you know, started, you know, kicking him in the head with their boots and not the one, you know, keep, kick, kicking him in the, like, body. Everyone was aiming for his head. And uh, after, you know, like 15, I gave all their names and, I, I, you know, details because I was interpreting in the months before for all this security. I would know all of them. I have been, interp- I have been dealing with securities for many months before that. And because there was not much people who spoke English, it had to be me and I knew all of them. But 15, 15 you know, uh, uh, people attacked Reza and beat him in the head. But it was just two, only two locals who were charged for it. And the Australian uh, officer, two of them that I identified in camp after, you know, when Wilson took over uh, from G4S, they came back and working actually in the camp. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about Reza. I want to know who he was to you, what kind of person he was and how you remember him. Actually, Reza was my 
best friend, my roommate, and a person that we we know uh, we get to know each other in uh, Indonesia, and we were like about uh, two weeks or more than three weeks in the same you know uh, hiding place in Indonesia, and uh, you know we were from the same language back. You know we were both Iranian and both Kurdish Iranian. And uh, during the time in Indonesia, I got to know him, and he was such a nice guy. He was very like a giant person in you know in body, but with a very uh, you know beautiful heart. That always during the time in camp, he was doing his best to motivate others to you know uh, take people to gym, and you know he was a bodybuilder, and he was teaching others but for me he was like my best friend and a brother to me we were so close i was teaching him english in i had english classes i was running english classes in camp but for reza i was you know teaching him in our room every day one to two hours and you know practicing with him english and uh it was very unfortunate that you know he was uh, murdered in that you know february attack you say you knew the guards who knew their faces and you even identified New Zealand expatriates that you say were involved but only two people not New Zealanders not Australians were prosecuted what's your message to the New Zealand government actually you know for the New Zealand government I'm uh, I personally don't have any problem with the new the government but these people who new zealand you know sent to australia and australia want them to beat up and uh, murder my roommate i would like to the new zealand government to bring these people to the court and ask them if you are a new zealander how would you how did you contribute in a murder that australia wanted you to do you know how could you beat a uh, uh, refugee that is underground in the head with your boots and you see that blood is coming out of his head you know blood like is like showering from his face you know i don't know who broke his nose that he did all his anger on rezas and uh, he was beating him put uh, you know with his boots on his head i would love that new zealand government could bring at least justice at least couple questions from this guy why did you murder a person you know murdering that person the reza is gone for since 2014 you know he had he was 23 years old he had lots of uh, you know hopes and wishes to to achieve but uh, he was deprived of it because of an australian and uh, new zealand expatriates and that's a very big shame after everything that you've been through and still are, what would bring you peace, if anything? Actually, the real peace, nothing, because I have already lost like seven years of being in detention and three or more years, which I could, you know, in this time, I shouldn't have been dealing with, you know, PTSD in France. I should have been able to, you know, get on with my life. It's uh, 10 years that I lost with nothing can bring it back. But what uh, that can like ideally makes me a little happy is the, you know, 
the life of these people who were tortured by Australian government, these around 3,000 people who were sent to offshores in Manusa Nauru. If I see they are happy in their life, I will be happy. But unfortunately, all majority of them are suffering, no matter in US, in Australia, or New Zealand, or Canada, or in Europe. I'm in contact with majority of them. They are suffering mentally. Many are suffering physically as well, but there is no exception in the mental problems that everyone is facing now. You know, there are people in U.S. that from us that are sleeping in the streets. You know, in Papua New Guinea, there is still like 70 people left there that every day, you know, life for them is a torture. You know, they are just, you know, trying to get to another day. A day that I see all these people can, you know, get on their love that will bring me peace. RNZ Pacific has contacted both the New Zealand and Australian governments for comments. New Zealand's Foreign Affairs Ministry is yet to respond. A spokesperson for Australia's Home Affairs Department says the department does not comment on the details of confidential legal settlements. There are concerns in Hawaii of predatory land buying as recent wildfires have left many locals in dire financial straits. The disaster has shed light on Hawaii's housing crisis. According to a report this year by Hawaii Senate's Housing Committee, an average of 14,000 Hawaiians leave the states every year, and over 6,000 are homeless. Fiona Fonoa has more. Homeowners have been reached out by investors and realtors offering to buy their land, and this is disgusting. Maui resident Tiare Lawrence, who lost her home to the wildfires, vented her frustration on MSNBC, accusing out-of-state developers of exploiting a disaster which has left thousands of Lahaina residents homeless and in a state of financial desperation. We just want to make sure that people around the world understand our situation and know that Lahaina is not for sale. Hawaii was already in a housing crisis before the disaster occurred. The state is notorious for high mortgage and rent rates. In fact, it was only last month that Hawaii's Governor Josh Green declared a housing emergency announcing plans to build 50,000 homes before 2025. One Lahaina evacuee, John Crew, told RNZ Pacific, local property owners were already struggling to keep up with costs before the wildfires destroyed their homes. People feel that they'll be forced to sell out because they're desperate, and then that will mean that there's no place for them to come back to. Certain people might take advantage of the disaster to gain more real estate because it's a vacation destination. People like to buy vacation property and that drives up the cost of everything. That was something that should have been addressed years ago. Governor Green says he's organized attorneys to assist local landowners. On Tuesday, the governor even suggested that the Hawaiian state purchase land from Lahaina. That comment caused a social media backlash from critics who accused the administration of protecting the interests of lucrative hotels and tourism developers, blamed by many for making Hawaii's property markets so expensive. On Wednesday, Governor Green dismissed the criticism. He said he was committed to protecting the land. Some people took out of context a comment I made about purchasing land. That is to protect it, to protect it for our local people so that it's not stolen by people on the mainland. So I've asked my attorney general to watch for predatory practices. We'll also be raising incredible amounts of resources 
to protect us financially so that none of that land does fall into anyone else's hands. This is not ever about the government getting land. This is the people's land, and the people will decide what to do with Lahaina. But many are doubtful. In the days following the disaster, thousands of Lahaina evacuees were forced to live in gymnasiums, churches, community shelters, and their cars, while Maui's many hotels and resorts remained open to tourists. It was only this week that Governor Green announced he had arranged for more than 500 rooms to be made available for evacuees to use. Lahaina evacuee and Native Hawaiian Kanani Higby told RNZ Pacific she had few choices, but to leave Hawaii for other states where costs of living are much cheaper. Lahaina evacuee John Crew said he prayed the community, which had existed for generations in Lahaina, would remain intact. People might have a tendency to want to leave the island and go someplace else, and、uh, I think that we want. We should build it so that people can come back and have a vibrant society here, not just be a tourist destination. According to Hawaii's Senate Housing Committee, one resident leaves the state every 36 minutes. The Banaban community are continuing to seek justice for what happened on the island and its people over a century ago. In the early 1900s, Banaba or Ocean Island was mined for phosphates, resulting in forced relocation of its people to settle in Rambi Island in Fiji. The extractive mining project, led by the British Phosphate Company, which New Zealand was a part of, is a history that is little known or forgotten about. But the Banabans of today say they still live with the grief and trauma brought on by the destructive practice. To move forward and heal, they are calling on the New Zealand government. To deliver a formal apology. Joining me to talk about Banaba and their journey towards restoration is Rambi Island community volunteer Ray Bantis. Talofalava Ray, why should New Zealand apologise to Banaba, seeing as they weren't the only country involved in mining the island? Yeah, I think、uh, as part of、uh, you know the the public apology that we we've been asking、uh, the New Zealand government. Uh, last February, when we were in Auckland with a group of、uh, uh, you know Banaban activists, dancers, and、uh, and some of our、uh, representatives from the Rambi Council of Leaders, part of the ask was how could they contribute back to the communities, to majority of the Banaban people who now reside、uh, in Rambi as a result of the forced relocation. Uh, and New Zealand is in the、uh, best position,、uh, you know, to step up uh, uh, with uh, facilitating this public apology, like they've done for other Pacific communities who are affected by the down rates, down rates. And we would love to see their leadership in also just stepping up and seeing where they could potentially assist our very marginalised communities. Uh, with uh, supporting education, scholarship, health,、uh, because for over 70 years the development on Rambi has really been constricted, restricted、uh, to the fact that uh, uh, you know、uh, Banaban development is really、uh, falling in the crack of two countries,、uh, Fiji and Kiribati, at this present time. So.、Uh, We were hoping with with the crisis, the ongoing acute crisis of、uh, water shortage, food shortage on Banaba in Kiribati, 
with the current development that we have on Rambi, you know, we, we're also asking in this petition if they could just come and uh, investigate and see how the Barnabans are doing now and what ways and what are the ways that they could, you know, uh, assist uh, the communities that are living on Rambi at this time. You've brought up a really interesting topic on the dawn raids. And yes, the New Zealand government has apologised to the Pacific community for that event. Um, they've also offered an apology to the Samoan community for how they poorly handled the Spanish influenza outbreak that happened hundreds of years ago. How does it make you feel to know that there's been recognition for that, but they haven't apologised yet for what they've done to Banaba? Yeah, so I am uh, the third generation Barnaban living on Rambi, and I've got nephews and nieces. It's the fourth generation that have, uh, uh, you know, made Fiji their second home. And all uh, all the time uh, while I was growing up, although I did not face uh, and experience the forced relocation, it was uh, during the 15th uh, celebration every year on uh, Rambi that we get to learn about the the experiences that our grandfathers and great-grandparents have to experience in the process of forced relocation. And for reasons and stories shared like these that makes us uh, very sad and very, you know, uh, and we experience the extent of trauma and uh, grief, although we were not the ones that uh, experienced that forced relocation. And I was in New Zealand uh, at the time when... Uh, the discussions around dawn raids was uh, happening and then I was in Rambi when the dawn raids apology took place and uh, for me as a community uh, that was uprooted from our ancestral home uh, because of uh, extractive industries and uh, phosphate mining I think that's that's what our community need right now it's one of any other countries that contributed to the exploitation of our lands to really step up and take the leadership to apologize, to take public apology so that our communities can start healing. And the apologies in the sense that, you know, they need to revisit and relook at how the Barnabin are thriving as peoples and as communities uh, in two states. What will it mean for you to have New Zealand acknowledge their past actions? It, it, it means a lot to us. Uh, as young people, it means a lot to us because uh, we can never move forward as a community uh, with the, you know, the, the the grief and the trauma and the experiences that we carry from our our, our past. And uh, you know, for us as young people right now, we feel that our story has been forgotten. No one country that were involved heavily in the mining of our island home have ever incorporated uh, Barnaban history in the curriculum. And it matters because as young people, and I talk on behalf of many young people on our island, uh, identity crisis has become um, a big issue for many of us. And uh, the, 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 the many more reason why uh, this apology is very important uh, for people so that we can start the healing process and moving 
progressing as a community to you know to ensure that we uh develop our island home and our people uh as a hill community because as a you know communities that are healed from these experiences or at least in the process of healing can can only then move forward to do uh many things to develop their their island homes and to feel that they you know they have a sign they have a sense of uh dignity dignity as a community that's specific ways for today don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs we're also on apple spotify and iHeartRadio radio podcasts from myself and the team here at rnz pacific so far so far